ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 7th of November. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has invited China's President Xi Jinping to visit Australia after a landmark meeting in Beijing. Mr Albanese is the first Australian leader to visit mainland China in seven years and trade, regional security and the plight of detained Australian writer were all discussed. President Xi declared Australia-China relations have embarked on the right path. East Asia correspondent Kathleen Calderwood is travelling with the Prime Minister in China. I look forward to another productive exchange today. In Beijing's Great Hall of the People, an historic moment takes place. Thank you very much, President Xi, for your very warm welcome here in Beijing. Addressing Mr Albanese through an interpreter, the Chinese president called back to another momentous occasion, paying tribute to Gough Whitlam for establishing diplomatic relations with China 50 years ago. In China, we often say when drinking water, one should not forget those who dug the well. The Chinese people will not forget Prime Minister Whitlam for digging the well for us. And now we are embracing a new 50-year in China-Australia relations. After years of icy relations, the Prime Minister was elated following the meeting, describing it as very successful and full of goodwill. It was very positive. It was constructive. Uh, I invited President Xi uh, to Australia at a mutually uh, beneficial uh, time to be agreed on. Uh, he invited me back uh, to, uh, to China at, uh, at a future time uh, as well. It's the second time the pair has officially met, the first a year ago on the sidelines of the G20 in Bali, and comes as China seeks to boost trade ties with Australia and limit America's influence in the region. I did discuss uh, international issues with President Xi and the importance of stability in the region and open channels of communication. Uh, we also discussed uh, our bilateral relationship. I raised consular and human rights issues uh, during the meeting as well. The pair met for more than an hour. Mr Albanese said they discussed trade and the global economy and that while President Xi raised the regional trade agreement, the CPTPP, he didn't explicitly ask for Australia's support. We spoke about uh, trade and, and welcomed the fact that we're returning uh, to, uh, as a result of the stabilisation of the relationship, returning to the exchange of trade that's been so important between our two countries. On points of tension, Mr Albanese said he raised China's human rights record and the plight of detained Australian writer Yang Hanjun, although he wouldn't give any indication about the prospects of his release. I raised it uh, in, the, in the meetings. And asked about if they discussed Beijing's support of Russia as it wages war on Ukraine, the Prime Minister kept things general. I certainly expressed uh, concern about the impact of conflict in the world, both Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Middle East conflict, of the need for uh, peace and security uh, in our region. 
It's understood President Xi spoke positively about the prospect of removing remaining tariffs on lobster and some red meat. And while he may still have concerns about Australia's friendly ties with the US and the AUKUS agreement, it was clear Mr Albanese's very happy with the outcome. This is Kathleen Calderwood in Beijing reporting for AM. Senator Simon Birmingham is the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and he joined me earlier. Simon Birmingham, thanks for your time. Do you give the government credit for getting relations back on the right path, as Xi Jinping claims they are? Well, good morning, David. We welcome stabilisation and we welcome the fact that China decided to end its ban on ministerial level engagement with Australia. And it is important that we try to pursue stability and Australia's interests wherever possible. But it's also critical that the Australian government remain clear-eyed about China and the challenges it poses just in the space of the last month in the lead up to this visit. We have seen Australia's and other international security chiefs provide new warnings about the extent of Chinese cyber espionage. We've seen the Chinese Navy undertake aggressive action against the Philippines and the South China Sea. And we've seen China's president host Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, in a yet further extension of the so-called no-limits partnership that China has entered into with warmongering Russia. So there are real challenges that we need to maintain very clear focus on as Australia. And it's important that whilst this visit might be positive, the Albanese government to not get any rose-coloured glasses about the challenges that are there as well. The Prime Minister said this meeting was not transactional. Can you understand if he comes home without a fresh breakthrough on trade or without an assurance about whether Yang Hengjun will be released? Well, Australians will ultimately judge the outcomes from these types of trips, and that's not unreasonable for Australians to expect their government to secure outcomes. And the importance there is that our wine industry shouldn't have to wait a further five months for China to potentially remove what are coercive and unjustified tariffs and sanctions on the wine industry, nor should our live seafood exporters or our meat industry continue to face punishment from China. And but is there anything the government Yang could do about that? Indefinitely or arbitrarily detained. Is there anything the government could do about those issues to speed them up? Well, we have to hope that Mr Albanese put the strongest possible case in all of his meetings and that he continues to do so in his engagements in China. Uh, and that the government continues to apply maximum advocacy and maximum pressure where possible for uh, the removal of these sanctions. Australia should be proud of the fact that we have withstood China's attempts at economic coercion, that as a nation we have not given in to the list of 14 demands that was infamously provided by the Chinese embassy, and that's a testament to Australian industry and Australian business in their resilience. It's also a reminder, though, of the importance to continue economic diversification. The previous coalition government, after these sanctions were put in place, secured new trade agreements with the United Kingdom and with India. The Albanese government is yet to secure any new trade agreements and with the breakdown in talks with the European Union looks some distance from doing so, but it needs a clear diversification strategy to make sure that we do minimise risk in the future uh, of China acting or attempting with similar coercive efforts. President Xi asserted China's wish to join the CPTPP trade pact. You've said that's not appropriate at this time. How long would China have to prove it plays by the rules of trade before you'd be happy to see them join that pact? Well, there are two big tests there, David. Uh, the first one you allude to, which is that China has been anything but a good citizen when it comes to trade in recent years. It's 
punishment of Australia, its weaponisation of trade and its breaches of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement uh, mean that it would not be appropriate for us right now to be looking at extending membership of another trade agreement uh, to China who have acted in such bad faith in recent years. But then there are substantive questions to be addressed as well. The CPTPP has some of the highest standards in the world, including, for example, for how state-owned enterprises operate. And we would have to expect and demand to see reforms in China to the transparency and operation of those state-owned enterprises before you could countenance China meeting the very high standards of the CPTPP. On the Israel-Gaza war, the Greens walked out of the Senate yesterday over what they say is government inaction over the conflict. Can you understand their concerns with 10,000 people reported killed in Gaza in just a month, about a third of them children? Well, I want to separate the two issues here. The Greens' stunt uh, did nothing, and this comes after the Australian Greens voted against the condemnation of Hamas for their attacks on Israel. Uh, and so the Greens have no credibility in this space, and uh, and their stunts, uh, their pathetic actions just seek uh, to weaken Australia and uh, undermine our position. Of course, though, the humanitarian concerns are real. The loss of any innocent lives, particularly of any innocent children, is a tragedy, whether that's a Palestinian child, an Israeli child or any other child. Our heart breaks and grieves for that. It is a terrible function, sadly, of war. And the challenge here is trying to see Hamas removed as quickly and effectively as possible for any position of power and influence and ability to create further terrorist strikes and actions. And we want to see that happen as quickly as possible so that hopefully we can see a stabilisation and ultimately longer term peace discussions between Israel and Palestinians to, uh, to establish uh, a viable, peaceful outcome for the future. Senator Birmingham, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you, David. My pleasure. And Simon Birmingham is the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. A New York judge has threatened to remove Donald Trump from court as the former president testified in a multi-million dollar fraud trial. Mr Trump is defending himself and his company over allegations asset prices were inflated to defraud banks and insurance companies. Our North America correspondent, Carrington Clark, has been in court. Carrington, what was it like inside that courtroom and what did Donald Trump have to say? Well, this is Donald Trump in full campaign mode. Any question about whether or not he would defer to the authority of the justice while in the courtroom were quickly dashed. Now, most of the questions coming from the prosecutor in this case had to do with how involved Donald Trump had been personally when it came to valuing some of the prized assets of the Trump organisation, including Trump Tower here in New York or Mar-a-Lago, his residence down in uh, in Florida, which Donald Trump claims is worth well over one billion US dollars, as opposed to the 18 million or 25 million dollars that the prosecutors are offering up as a fair valuation. But Donald Trump was not in a mood to be told what to do, and we knew that this was potentially going to be fiery. But watching the dynamic between uh, Justice Erngren and Donald Trump up close as Donald Trump went the justice, which you must remember, this is not a jury trial. This is the justice will determine how much of a fine the Trump organization has to pay and will determine uh, whether or not the Trump organization is able to continue doing business in New York. But Donald Trump called the judge to his face 
unfair, uh, said that his opinion was wrong in that the justice has already determined that fraud has been committed by the Trump organisation. Really, this trial is just determining what penalty they should pay for, for that fraud. But Donald Trump went him repeatedly and also went the state attorney general who was sitting in the room calling her a political hack and telling the world that this was just a politically motivated event and that's why he was on trial. Now, we don't actually, unfortunately, have audio from inside the courtroom, but this was what Donald Trump had to say before he entered. People of the country understand it, they see it, and they don't like it. They don't like it because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. But usually it takes place in third world countries and banana republics, and nobody's ever seen that to this extent. We've never seen it yet. And Carrington, later this week, Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, will take the stand. What can we expect from her? Well, I think it's fair to say Ivanka Trump, out of the three Trump children who are expected to testify, is seen as a bit of the wild card. Unlike her brothers Don Jr. and Eric, she's no longer part of the Trump organisation, doesn't have a, have a set role with them. After her father lost the presidency, she basically retired back to a more private life with her husband and children. But she has been caught up by the prosecutors who want to see what she knew when it came to these valuations, the way that the financials of the Trump organisation worked. The question is, first of all, will she choose to plead the fifth? She could do that. Or could she potentially cause problems for the Trump organisation and for her father if she says things that are inconsistent with the narrative that they've so far uh, been laying out before the court? That's correspondent Carrington Clark in New York. As Israel prepares to mark one month since the October 7 Hamas terrorist attacks that killed an estimated 1,400 people, Palestinians are noting a different, gruesome milestone. The Hamas-run Ministry of Health in Gaza estimates 10,000 Palestinians have been killed since Israel began retaliatory strikes on Gaza, including a ground assault. For more, correspondent Eric Torchek is in Jerusalem. Well, David, overnight there were an enormous number of strikes uh, in Gaza that Gazans spent the day, 450 in total. Gazans say one of the biggest bombardments they've endured in this conflict so far. So Gazans have spent the day trying to recover bodies from the rubble. Um, the strikes hit places like Beach Camp, uh, which is another densely populated former refugee camp turned into an urban area. And the damage is is shocking, as shocking as pictures we were seeing uh, coming out of the Jabalia refugee camp area last week. The Israeli military says that it is preparing uh, to enter Gaza City proper uh, in the coming days. It says it's completed its encirclement of the Gaza City area. So that's the northern part of Gaza and the, the most densely sort of urbanised area within the Gaza Strip. The conditions there are getting pretty tough for the people uh, inside Gaza. There's still hundreds of thousands of civilians inside Gaza City. There's real fear when Israel's troops uh, do push into Gaza City itself that there'll be thousands and thousands of civilians between them and uh, the Hamas operatives Israel's trying to kill. Yes, and as that goes on, there's been a barrage of rockets fired from southern Lebanon deep into Israel. Is it looking increasingly like Israeli forces may enter a second conflict, this time with the Lebanese militant group Hezbollah? Everybody has been afraid of that occurring. Uh, the Lebanese, the people in northern Israel, most of whom have been evacuated, and it seemed close 
to a real danger point last night, our time, when Israel struck a car that uh, the Lebanese said was carrying a family, a grandmother, a mother and two children, killing the children. Hezbollah has promised to respond to any such attack, saying if Israel kills civilians, it will kill civilians. And today, we can presume that that retribution came with 30 launches coming uh, of, of rockets coming over the border from Lebanon. Uh, and some of those launches targeted areas far deeper inside Israel, such as Nahariya and areas towards the, the big city of Haifa in, in the north, uh, much further than Hezbollah has launched rockets at any other time in this conflict. So it does represent something of an escalation uh, on that northern border and something Israel has actually said it doesn't want. It does not want to open up a second front with Hezbollah in Lebanon, although it's warned that it will respond forcefully. That's correspondent Eric Torchek in Jerusalem. Well, there is a buzz of excitement in stables and offices around the country ahead of this afternoon's Melbourne Cup. Many tens of millions of dollars are expected to change hands as punters bet on the outcome. And despite the cost of living crunch and the possibility of another interest rate rise later today, researchers are warning the race that stops the nation could be luring new punters. Isabel Masali reports. From workplace sweepstakes to social media and your TV... It's hard to miss its Melbourne Cup day. The Irish train Vorman is firming his favourite ahead of last year's winter gold trip. More than 240,000 racecars are expected to attend the four-day carnival. The race and its hype don't just lure regular punters. Some people will download a betting app for the first time. What the bookies are seeing is a massive marketing opportunity because once they've got you details in their system, they market like there's no tomorrow. That's Associate Professor and Gambling Researcher Charles Livingstone from Monash University. With the high cost of living, you might think that people won't be placing as many bets. The sort of recent data on poker machine gambling suggests that quite the opposite is happening, that people living under, you know, serious stressful circumstances find that gambling can relieve that stress. And so we're seeing a bit of an explosion in poker machine gambling uh, in all states and territories. And at the same time, we're seeing uh, online wagering continuing to grow quickly. He argues various changes are desperately needed to curb gambling and harm, including stopping advertising, making poker machines harder to access and introducing pre-commitment systems where players can set loss limits but he says some federal measures announced this year will also make a difference. The biggest and most important one so far this year has been the introduction of BetStop. So BetStop is um, a facility that enables people who want to stop gambling online to do so by simply making one request via a centralised website or via their bookie. Government's also banned credit betting, so you can't use credit cards to bet anymore. At Perth's Curtin University, Louise Francis is studying the impact of gambling exposure on young people. The evidence suggests that one in five adults with gambling problems started gambling before they were 18. So earlier they are starting to gamble, there's a potential for them to have real problems later in life with gambling. Her advice to parents... I think it's really important that parents understand that the whole gambling environment is very influential to children, you know, so they see mobile gambling and it creates easy access. Um, Children are also influenced by how family and friends view and participate in gambling. So I think families need to be aware 
of how they speak about gambling around young people. She says that can be a problem if kids only see gambling as a positive social activity. Isabel Masali reporting, and that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. When three people died and one was left seriously ill from suspected mushroom poisoning after a lunch in regional Victoria, the world was captivated. Now the meal host, Erin Patterson, has been charged. The intrigue has only intensified. Today, a criminologist on why it took police three months to arrest the 49-year-old and whether she can receive a fair trial. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.